We are in the third week of a four-part series called From Small Talk to God Talk. And over the last couple of weeks, uh, a number of you have shared stories with me about how this series is helping you engage others in spiritual conversations. And at the same time, I've heard some other kind of stories about those of you who feel like you really missed some golden opportunities. You know, there was a wide open door to turn things in a Godward direction in a conversation and you feel like you blew it. And I've been there. You know, I've been there when I've been too timid, too unprepared in spirit to enter into a conversation and talk about the good news of Christ. Uh, One lady who told me uh, a story along these lines in the Welcome Center at the St. Charles campus after one of our services a week or two ago, she said that her husband, Philip, didn't come to know Jesus till he was 42 years old. That's when he surrendered his life to Christ. But she said along the way, there were all sorts of people who could have told him the good news, but failed to. She said it started when he he was a young boy. He had a playmate, and one day they were out in the woods playing together, and some bullies accosted them and tied him to a tree. And uh, Philip's wondering out loud, what are we going to do? And his, his friend said, well, no problem. We're going to pray and ask God for help. And this was, this was brand new, new news to Philip. He didn't know about prayer. He didn't know anything about God. And so his friend prayed. And about the time he said amen, some people wandered into the, into the woods, saw the boys, and, and unleashed them. And Philip thought that was really cool. And his friend said, well, sometime I'll invite you to church, and you could hear more about God and about prayer. And the invitation never came. So some years later, uh, Philip is in the Navy. One night he's out at a bar with buddies and they're drinking and a fight, a brawl starts and the military police show up and so he slips out the back door in the dark across the street, there's a darkened church, he goes into the church and later on when he comes out, a, a Navy officer who's seen him run into the church asks what he's been up to and he explains and the, the officer says, well, if you, you wanna know what really goes on inside a church, if you wanna know more about a relationship with God, I'd be happy to stop by your ship sometime and tell you. And Philip said, well, how about tomorrow when the guy says, I'll be there. And the next day, Philip waited on ship all day long, and the guy never showed up. After the Navy, Philip got a job as a teacher in L.A., he started dating an attractive young woman, and one day there was a knock at his apartment door, and he opened it up, and there's this big burly guy there, and he said, you're dating my wife. And so he warned Philip off, and He explained, he said, I'm a Christ follower and I'm trying to rebuild my marriage, so you stay away. Philip said he never told me how I I, I could become a Christ follower, what it it means to be a Christ follower, no explanation. Some years after that, Philip is in AA because of a drinking problem and he's assigned a mentor, a mentor who tells him about a higher power who can help him out. But this mentor who's a Christ follower never tells Philip who the higher power is. You know how Philip finally comes to Christ? Sitting alone in a hotel room reading a Gideon's Bible. That's how it happens. But when he surrendered his life to Jesus, he said, I will never, never, never withhold this information about Jesus from somebody else like people withheld it from me. You know, as I was listening to this woman tell me about her husband, Philip, I thought to myself, whoa, I wonder if this is me sometime." I wonder if there are people in my life who are in middle adulthood and uh, they've, they've never heard about Christ from me. You know, I, I wonder if there are people who live in my neighborhood, people who've worked, uh, worked out alongside me at the gym, uh, people who have dog sat for my dog when I go out of town, 
who don't know about Jesus, and I've, I've been the one who's failed to tell them, failed to point them in that direction. So they've never experienced Jesus' forgiveness, never experienced the transformation of life that only Jesus can bring, never received the gift of eternal life that faith in Christ brings us. See, with so much at stake, we just got to learn how to move small talk to God talk, right? We got to learn how to engage in spiritual conversations. Now, I want you to turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 4. Uh, each week of this series, we are looking at another Bible story where a person demonstrates how to move a conversation from small talk to God talk. You know, the, the, the first week it was, it, it was Jesus, and last week it was the Apostle Paul, and we're going back to Jesus today. If you haven't taken the outline from your program, uh, please take that out as well. And I'd like to read to you a, a passage of Scripture from John chapter 4. Uh, we are following a three-step strategy for spiritual engagement, for spiritual conversations. Uh, N-E-T is the acronym for the strategy. Let's see how well we're remembering. N stands for notice, E stands for engage, and T stands for tell. Notice, engage, tell. Pick up the story in verse 3 of John chapter 4. So Jesus left Judea, and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. I want to stop right there. So Jesus, little historical context here, he's on a road trip with his disciples. And they are traveling from Judea, a region in the south, uh, where Jesus has been performing miracles, doing teaching, healing people, uh, mostly in the capital city of Judea called Jerusalem. And he wants to travel up to the lake region of Galilee. Verse 4 says he has to go through Samaria, a middle region. Now, the truth of the matter was he didn't have to go through Samaria. There were actually two routes between Judea and Galilee back in Jesus' day. Uh, one of those routes, the very direct route, the route that most people took, you, know, you, you walked up the western shoreline of the Jordan River till you got to Galilee. You had to go through Samaria. That's the route most people would take to get to Galilee. However, there was another route. If you were an Orthodox Jew, you might choose to cross over the Jordan River to the east side, go up the east shoreline, track uh, along the eastern shoreline, and then cross back over the Jordan River into Galilee. Now, why would you do that? Why would you walk all that extra distance? It wasn't because the eastern route was the more scenic route. Now, it was because if you took the eastern route, you could avoid Samaria. A little more historical background. 721 B.C. 721 B.C., Israel is divided into two kingdoms. There's a, a northern Israel, a southern Israel. Northern Israel is invaded by the superpower of the day, a country called Assyria. They capture the capital city of northern Israel called Samaria. Many of its leading citizens are taken away into exile by the, the Assyrians who replace them with foreigners. And over the next seven centuries, these foreigners intermingle with the local population, the Jewish population. 
And so the offspring are half-breeds. They're half-breed racially. They're half-breeds religiously. Things are compromised in their Jewish faith. You know, they now reject most of the Old Testament. They hang on to the first five books called the books of Moses, but the other uh, books of the 39 Old Testament books are rejected. And Samaritans, the offspring, are despised by Orthodox Jews. And this is why many Jews took the long route around Samaria. But not Jesus. Jesus deliberately, Jesus intentionally, purposely went through the region. Now, more about his motivation for doing that in a a little bit, but when Jesus and his followers are traveling through Samaria, they come come to a town called Sychar, and Jesus sits down on the side of a well for a rest, and his disciples say they're going to go into town and bag some food. So Jesus is sitting here on the side of the well. Now, if, if this story were played out today, I know exactly what Jesus would be doing. What would he be doing? (laughs) You know, don't you think? I mean, he's bored. He's tired. He's all alone. He gets out of cell. He texts Joseph back in Nazareth. How's the carpentry business going? You know, he Googles Sychar to find out what points of interest there are while they're in town. He checks Google Maps to make sure they're on the right route. He plays a game of solitaire. He goes looking for Pokemon in Sychar. And if Jesus had done that, he would not have noticed the woman who came in the middle of the day to draw water. He would have been too absorbed in his phone to notice. He would have been too absorbed in his phone to notice. Do you think I'm making a point here? He would have been too absorbed in his phone to notice. The first step in moving conversations from small talk to God talk is to start noticing people. For many of us, friends, that means put down the dang phone and pay attention. Put down the phone. I was uh, reading an autobiography of Benji Molina I am a huge baseball fan. And Benji's one of three brothers who all made it to the major leagues from Puerto Rico, and they all became catchers in the major leagues. Now, Benji was the only one of the three brothers who didn't start out as a catcher, so he had to learn what you need to do to become a good catcher. And so he was taught, most important thing to do, you gotta pay attention to your pitcher. You gotta notice your pitcher. You gotta notice every facial expression, every bit of body language. You know, when his second baseman makes an error, is he rattled? Okay, is he, is he, is he in a funk now? Okay, when he gives up a, a double to a batter, how's he doing? When the, when the umpire calls a, a ball something that you know it was a strike, does that just bring out the competitive juices or does it, does it cause him to throw up his hands and now he's in despair? Benji Molina says that, you know, the best catchers squat inside the brain of their pitcher. Uh, that's such a, such a great line. You don't just squat behind home plate. You've got to squat within the brain of your pitcher. We've got to notice. We've got to notice. When the woman arrived at the well in Sychar, Jesus noticed. Now, what did Jesus observe? 
Well, you know, it was obvious she was a Samaritan. He, he noticed that. It's obvious she was a woman. And we're going to come back to those two basic traits in a, in a little bit, Samaritan woman. But another thing Jesus noticed is that she was coming in the middle of the day. Verse 6 says, about noon. You see that? About noon. So this is the heat of the day. If you've never been in the Middle East in the heat of the day, it's hot. This is not the time to go to the well to get water. This is time to find a shady spot and take a siesta, take a nap. Okay, so why is she there in the middle of the day? Well, Jesus is a good noticer. He knows why. I want to drop down to the middle of the conversation for a moment. Pick it up at verse 16. Amazing what Jesus notices. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. So why was she there at the well in the middle of the day? Obviously, she didn't want to be seen by anybody. She didn't want to see anybody. She was a woman who had a reputation for loose morals. She had been in and out of bed with a number of guys. Five of the guys she had married. One of the guys, the current guy, was just a live-in boyfriend. So how does Jesus pick up on this? How does Jesus notice this? And, and then why is it important? I mean, what difference does it make when it comes to moving a conversation from small talk to God talk? Let's, let's start with the how. How did Jesus notice that this woman had been through five husbands and was currently living with a sixth guy? One possibility is because Jesus is fully God as well as, as fully man. He just exercised his divine all-knowingness on this occasion. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So, so maybe Jesus noticed this woman's sordid sexual track record because he's the son of God. Now that's a, uh, that's a possible explanation. Unfortunately, it's no, it's no help to us if we're going to school on Jesus to learn that he noticed because he's the son of God. Because none, none of us is God or all-knowing though at times we may think we are. Here's another possibility. Jesus prayed constantly. Jesus prayed constantly seeking the Heavenly Father's insight, and that insight we learn from the gospel accounts of Jesus' life came through the leading of the Holy Spirit. So maybe on this occasion Jesus, Jesus prayed. He prayed and the Holy Spirit gave him insight into the Samaritan woman's past. Now, is that a pattern we can follow? Prayer. First week of the series, I, I told you that in order to become better noticers, we got to become prayers. We go through the day praying for people we encounter, even the people we're just passing by with no words exchanged. Remember the expression I, I used? We got to start praying behind people's backs, right? So this isn't out loud praying. You know, you, you don't close your eyes, you don't move your lips. You, you just start praying for the people you encounter, and one of the, one of the things you, you pray for is that God will give you insight into their lives. So if we're praying for people before engaging them in conversation, will the Holy Spirit tell us specifics about them? Will the Holy Spirit say, hey, you're talking to somebody who's had five husbands and is currently living with a guy? 
Or will the Holy Spirit say, hey, this guy that you're talking to, he's embezzling money from his company. Or this friend at school you're, you're talking, she's, she's cutting. She's thinking about taking her life. Will the Holy Spirit give us insider information like that? Sometimes he does. You know, sometimes when I'm, uh, I'm talking to someone, be it an old friend or a new acquaintance, uh, some Holy Spirit hunch pops into my mind. Now, because I'm not Jesus and I'm not 100% certain at any time whether that came from the Holy Spirit or that's last night's chili, you know, still working inside of me, but what I'll do is I'll just ask some subtle questions to get around to information about family and background and how you doing. So sometimes the Holy Spirit does give insider information as we're praying, but whether or not he does, he just makes us a better noticer. The Holy, as we're praying for people, we're just more attuned to what's going on in their lives. We notice better. So prayerfully notice. Prayerfully note. That's the end. Number two, engage. Engage. At some point, we've got to move beyond noticing. We've got to jump into a conversation. You know, it, for many of us, it's not a case of ready, set, go. It's a case of ready, set, 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 set. You know, at some point, we've got to pull the trigger. We've got to go. We've got to jump into the conversation, get things started, engage. Now, the first week of this series... I noted that there are three aspects of engaging to consider. You know, engaging takes a welcoming spirit, it takes conversational environments, and it takes good questions. So, a welcoming spirit, what does that mean? It means we got to give off a vibe that says, I'm interested in your life. we got to give off a vibe that says, you know, I enjoy talking with you. See, Jesus did that with the woman at the well. He communicated a welcoming spirit, even though, get this, even though Jesus had good reasons not to converse with her. Okay, for starters, she was a Samaritan. And I've already told you that Orthodox Jews thought Samaritans were scumbags back in Jesus' day. Even the woman herself, she's kind of surprised when Jesus begins a conversation with her because of the widespread animosity between Jews and Samaritans. Look, look, look at verse 9. You know, the, the, the woman says to Jesus, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So kind of surprising that Jesus is exuding a welcoming spirit. A second reason it's surprising is because she was a woman. And back in Jesus' day, the rabbis taught that fellow rabbis especially should not be speaking to women, especially out in public, not even their wives, because at best this was a waste of their time to talk to a woman, a waste of your time. At, at worst, it meant you were diverting your attention as a rabbi from the Torah, from the study of God's word. What evil could come of that? So here, here's Jesus, he's talking to a Samaritan, he's talking to a Samaritan who happens to be a woman, he's talking to a Samaritan who happens to be a woman, who happens to have a notorious reputation for sleeping around. She's immoral, everybody knows that. One, one Bible commentator says, you know, try to imagine this. Try to imagine this woman coming down to the well, there's probably one main route, one main path from 
downtown Sychar to the well. She's coming down this path, and who's headed in the opposite direction? Jesus' disciples, because they're on their way to Sychar to get some food. And this commentator says, you, you, you can bet when they saw her coming, they stepped off the path, they made a wide circle around her, not looking, not speaking to her. But not Jesus. And Jesus just communicated this welcoming spirit. He was a conversation initiator. Here's a, a second aspect of engaging, creating conversational environments. Remember this one? Okay, deliberately choosing times and places in which we can talk with other people. Uh, back to verse 4, that expression, he had to go through Samaria. Now, I've already told you that in Jesus' day, he didn't have to go through Samaria, geographically speaking. There were two routes. He could have taken the other route. So, so when the scripture says he had to go through Samaria, we're not talking about geographical necessity. We're talking about a different kind of, of motivation, different kind of necessity. I'm going to call it relational necessity. See, it's obvious that the Holy Spirit has prompted him to take this route because there's someone along the path with whom he's going to begin a spiritual conversation. So, so here's our takeaway. Our, our takeaway is, is, do we ever choose a path that's likely to open up a conversation with others? Now, do we ever choose those paths that we know are going to open up conversations with others? So let me give you several examples, okay, from my life that will help to illustrate what I'm talking about here. Uh, when I'm on an airplane, I like to read. Okay, actually, I like to read. I like to read anywhere. And so if I'm stuck on a three, four-hour flight, I mean, that's like, that's cool. I, get, I can just spend all this time reading. But sometimes I'll notice out of the corner of my eye, my seatmate is bored and they're staring listlessly out the window. Now, I know if I continue to read, there will be no conversation. So I have to deliberately close my book and turn in my seat and ask a question. I hate to close a book. Ah, oh, that's so hard to do. But that's what's got to be done if you want the conversation. Okay, you following this? Give you, give you another example. Uh, oftentimes when I go to work out, it's at the end of the day. I, I go to work out to decompress, especially if I've, been, if I've been in meetings all day long chatting with people. I'm an introvert. I just want to get away from it all. So I go, and if there is an elliptical machine in the corner of the room where nobody else is, that's my machine. But sometimes I'll walk, and guess where the empty machine is? It's right next to a guy who I've gotten to know a little bit, and he doesn't have earbuds in, so he's happy to talk if I'll just get on the machine next to him and start pumping. And I choose that machine. Oh, that's hard. Well, I'll give you one from this last week. Okay, I get home from work one day, and the sun is just setting, and it's getting dusk, and I look across the street, and... Uh, a neighbor dad is playing catch with his seven-year-old son, Liam, and uh, we're, we're just starting to get to know these neighbors. They've moved in, in in this past year, and I'm thinking, I want to go inside, but I grab my mitt and I run across because there's nothing like a game of catch to provide you with an opportunity to talk. Now, there's, there's an amusing side note to this story. The, the first ball Liam throws me is uh, way to my Side, So I go like this, and I trip and fall on the cement driveway and scrape myself up. And I get up thinking to myself, 
what a clumsy jerk. <laughs> you know, which is probably what this little boy's thinking. Dad, that old guy, you know, we got to watch out for him. Yeah, it can be painful to make opportunities for conversation. Something Sue taught me years ago, you know, when your kids get to be uh, teenagers, she said, if they're ready to talk, if they're ready to drop everything you're doing and have that conversation, because nev- you never know when the next golden opportunity is going to come along. See, that's the way it is with conversational environments. You take advantage of them whenever you see them. You get it? Good, good. A willing spirit, conversational environments. Here's a third aspect of engaging. I call it good questions. I mean, this is how Jesus got the ball rolling with the woman at the well. Look at at verse 7. A Jesus opener here, it's so simple that we could easily miss its brilliance. He just asked the woman, will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? What a great question. You say, what's so great about that question? Well, it... Oftentimes when we're opening up spiritual conversations with people, even though we, we don't intend to come across condescendingly, we do. You know, it, it's just like, I know God and you don't. I've got salvation. I want to give it to you. And it, let me tell you, people don't like to be on the receiving end of anybody's charity. So it immediately puts up defensive walls. Now, on the other hand, people like to lend a helping hand when they can. They like to grant a favor as long as it's not not too big a deal. And so if you want to open a conversation with your friend at school, just ask, hey, could you help me with the algebra homework? And that's going to be the beginning of a conversation. And you want to open up a conversation at work, just say, hey, my car's in the shop. Could you drop me off at home afterwards today? See how that works? You go to a neighbor. I mean, what reason do any of us have to go to the neighbor's house and ring the doorbell? None at all, right? So here's the reason. It's, hey, we're going out of town for a couple of days. Could you take in our mail? And, oh, once you're past that, that, that initial question, the conversation has started. So Jesus asks this woman for a drink of water. It's an opportunity for her to help him out. A great conversation opener. It also gave Jesus the opportunity to talk about a topic that could transition the conversation from small talk to God talk. What was the topic of conversation? Water. You know, what do you talk about to a woman at the side of a well? You talk about water. So this takes us to the T of net, to tell. And I want to pick up the story in verse 10. I'm going to emphasize this word water every time you see it. Put a circle around it in your Bible. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you've nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. What's the key word? Water. You can't miss it. See, once we engage others in conversation, we begin to look for ways to move that conversation from small talk to God talk. Jesus did that with the woman at the well by taking off on the topic of water. 
Now, here's a little more context, okay, historical context. The spot where Jesus meets this woman, verses 5 and 6, they call it Jacob's well. Now, interestingly, you can still drink from Jacob's well today if you go to Israel. Now, you got to know, you, you got to have a Palestinian friend who could get you into the West Bank area, but I've managed to do that once or twice. You come to this little village called Nablus, and there was a Greek Orthodox church there that has been built over Jacob's well. And, you know, it's one of the few places in the Holy Land you know it's the original place because you, you can't move a well around. That's 100 feet deep cut through rock. And so if you go to the basement, down the stairs to the basement crypt of the church, you can lower a bucket into this well and bring up some water and pour it into a tin cup and actually drink it. So I've had some of this water that you know, Jesus was asking for from the Samaritan woman when he began the conversation about living water. Living, now, living water was the perfect transitional line for Jesus because it, it was a double entendre. It had a, a double meaning. So on the one hand, living water was a, a common expression of the day to describe spring-fed, a spring-fed source of water. It was living. It was moving. Okay, th th this is a water source that would never become stagnant. It wouldn't dry up. And, and so when he offers her living water, she's thinking to herself, are you kidding me? This is wonderful. Are you telling me you know about a spring-fed source of water so I wouldn't have to come to this stinking well every day? In the heat of the day, the embarrassment of facing other villagers? Hey, tell me about it. But this expression, living water, it was also used in the Old Testament of God. God is the source of a certain kind of water that could satisfy, it could quench a person's soul. The, the opening verses of Psalm 42 read like this. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, God declares, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You, you hear what, what God is saying there? He's saying people are, people are soul thirsty. There, there is a deep longing in their lives for something that will provide lasting satisfaction. But their natural bent, God says, their natural bent is to look for that satisfaction in other places rather than in me. And it never works. Their thirst is never quenched. Now, is this sound at all familiar to our ears? See, for the past two weeks, we've been learning from the Bible stories we've looked at that people tend to gravitate toward false gods. A false god we defined as anything or anybody that we depend on for happiness, significance, or security. And the trouble we learned in going after a false god is that they'll disappoint you every time. They'll let you down when the chips are down. See, only God can provide lasting happiness, significance, and security. Living water is just another metaphor saying the same thing that only God can satisfy our thirst. The Samaritan woman didn't have this living water. What was she depending upon for her happiness, significance, 
and security. What do you think? Call it out. What did she depend on for that? Men. Another relationship with yet another guy. So maybe this next guy could give her the happiness of a sexual pleasure. Maybe this next guy could provide the significance of somebody who actually loves me. Maybe this next guy will give me the security of, of a man who will provide for me and protect me. And every time she came up empty, every time she walked away thirsty, this was something no guy could provide. So if we, if we want to move conversations from small talk to God talk, it helps if we can discern how the people we're talking to are currently trying to satisfy their thirst. I mean, you're in this conversation, just ask yourself, so what is their go-to drink? Where are they drinking? What well are they drinking from for happiness? Is it travel? Is it winning a World Series? Is it going fishing or shopping or whatever? What are they depending upon for their significance? Is it getting into the college of their choice or having a dating relationship? Is it closing the next big deal at work that will make them feel significant? Where are they looking for their security? Is it in their physical fitness? Nothing can happen to me because I'm physically fit. Is it their financial investments? It's the, is it the election of the right president? See, once, once we know what people are depending on to quench their thirst, we can begin to hint that maybe this water source is never going to do the job. But you know what? Got good news for you. I've discovered some living water. I've discovered some living water. So how do we break into that conversation? Maybe we break into it like Jesus did with the woman at the well. You, you, it's some sort of a word play. You're, you know, you're just looking. All it, all it takes sometimes is one line to move a conversation in that direction. When we began this series, one of the business guys in our church wrote me an email, and he said, you know, for the record, I just find it so easy to move a conversation from small talk to God talk at work, in business. He said, there, there are certain phrases you know, business people like to talk about, for example, coincidences. You know, this just happened to work out so that this happened and this happened. And he said, when I hear that, I say, well, I don't believe in coincidences, but I believe in God's plan. I believe he's got a plan for my life and for my business. Or he said, people love to talk about successes. And I say, well, I'm not so sure about successes, but let me tell you about God's blessings in my life. He says, there are just so many ways to turn a conversation around. Is this just all word meistering? Is it semantics? No, it's transitioning a conversation from small talk to God talk, like Jesus did with this woman by bringing up the topic of living water. Now, before we wrap up this story, there are a couple more things that Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that are pretty significant for us to include. If we're at the tell stage, notice engage tell, the tell stage of a spiritual conversation. One of those two remaining things is sin. You know, it really helps to bring sin into the conversation. So how does Jesus do it with this woman? Well, he finishes up talking about living water, turns the corner. Verse 16, we've already looked at this verse. Jesus tells her, go call your husband and come back. To which she replies, well, I don't have a husband. And, and he says, well, of course you don't. You've had five. And the guy you're now living with, it's your living boyfriend. So now when you read that, 
Initially, you think to yourself, whoa, not too subtle, is he? Really blunt. He just throws her moral failure up into her face. Is that what he does here? He just yeah, busts her. You know, guilty. Well, you know, I don't think so because the second part of the line is go call your husband and come back. He, he's not saying, get away from me, you tramp. He's saying, I know your sin. And I know that it's destroying your relationship with a holy God. So I want you to own it. And then I, then I want you to come to me. I want you, and evidently she gets the message, friends, because at the, the very end of the conversation, when it's, when it's over, she runs into town. Look at verse 29. And she tells everybody, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? This doesn't sound like a woman who's just been busted. Sounds like a woman who's just been liberated. Doesn't sound like a woman who's been put down. Sounds like a woman who's enthralled at the possibility that someone could care for her in spite of her sin. You know, it's at some point in a spiritual conversation, the topic of sin has to come up because it's sin that's keeping people at a distance from God. It's sin that is killing them. The wages of sin is death. It kills you spiritually, and if the problem isn't fixed in this life, it kills you for all eternity. So how do you bring it up without sounding judgmental, without sounding condescending? You know, I found the best way to do it is I just talk about my own sin. I just talk about what it was that kept me at arm's length from a holy God. That before I surrendered my life to Christ, I was addicted to self-centeredness. Jim was the center of my universe. And I had to repent of that and I had to come to God. And you know what I discovered? I discovered that this God embraced me with open arms. That he wanted a relationship with me. That he'd done everything possible to bring that relationship about, including sending his son into this sin-stained world. And that's the other topic of conversation we got to bring up. we got to talk about Jesus. God took the initiative to restore my broken relationship with him by sending his son Jesus to pay the penalty for the, the sins, the penalty I deserve to pay, the penalty's death. That's what, what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was dying for me so that he could offer me the gift of forgiveness and a brand new life, a life that would stretch on into eternity. See, at some point, I want to get the conversation around to Jesus. Now, let me, let me quickly clarify and say that not every spiritual conversation gets around to Jesus, and that's okay. You know, so, sometimes we're just a link in a long chain of spiritual conversations that eventually lead a person to trust in Christ. That's okay. You just be the next link. But I found it to be super helpful to keep in the back of my mind that the bullseye of the target I'm shooting at is Jesus. That if there's any way I can bring this conversation around to Jesus, not just generic God talk, not this is how my prayers are getting answered, or this is how wonderful my church is, or, but getting the conversation around to Jesus. That's where I want to go. You know, that's how the conversation ended between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Look at verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. 
And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. You know what's so moving about this declaration? This is the only time in the four Gospels before Jesus' arrest, before his crucifixion, when Jesus identifies himself to others as the Messiah, when he takes the initiative. And who does he do it with? With a Samaritan woman with a reputation for immorality. Wow. See, I want to get the conversation around to Jesus any way possible. I want to talk about what Jesus means to me. Now, this is a great segue into what we're going to do next across our four campuses. We're going to celebrate a time of communion. Communion is when we remember what Christ did for us on the cross, that he took the shame, he took the death we deserve. So we're going to do this across our, our four campuses But in order to prepare our hearts for this, Scripture says whenever we come to the Lord's table, whenever we come to communion, it's to be a time of personal self-examination, to look at our hearts and say, okay, where have we been strained from God? How can we come back? So I'm going to give us a moment of silence across our four campuses. When the silence is over, I'm going to ask the campus pastors to just explain communion and get it started. But again, before we do that, A few moments of quiet, of self-examination, of saying to the Lord, Lord, here's where I've gone off the path, or there's where I've gone off the path. Please forgive me. Please restore me. I want to walk with you. Let's do that right now. Would you bow with me in quiet before God? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Allow the forgiveness, the cleansing of Jesus to wash over you as you prepare to take communion. Amen.